Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. When I started speed reading, it was because I was running a billion dollars and it was right into the economic crisis and I didn't have any answers. You know, you can find tons of people to explain to you how to manage money when the markets are going up. Markets are going down. Everybody's got great guesses. But that's not helpful when you got to watch your P&L swing a few million dollars up and down every day. I needed some answers. I need them fast. So I just started reading ridiculous amounts of material and it was through that exercise that my brain just started to develop pattern recognition. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Mei Ling Lai. She is back by popular demand. If you missed episode one of The Maverick Show, I'd encourage you definitely to listen to that one. That was part one, and now we're back with a very exciting follow-up. If you have not experienced Mei Ling yet, she is an innovation specialist, investor, consultant, and business founder. In the last episode, we talked about how she started a nutraceuticals business at age 24 that she and her co-founder built up to a $2 million annual revenue in just two years. She then went on to manage over a billion dollars in assets as part of a hedge fund portfolio. One of very few women in the world that has ever managed a portfolio of that size. She then co-founded an asset management analytics consulting company acting as head of innovation and where her work with C-level executives impacted over $1.2 trillion in assets. Since the last episode, she has created a course called The Seven Skills of Speed Reading. She has traveled to a whole bunch of additional countries. She's now up to 58. She speaks five languages. And oh, by the way, she retired at age 39. And she's now sitting on boards, doing freelance consulting with super cool companies by choice and traveling the world to really exciting, interesting places. Mei Ling, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. That's a great introduction. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good to be back. 
we should set the scene here. We are actually currently in your apartment in Manhattan. I think New we're snowed York in, to be honest. We are basically snowed in. It is like <laughs> blizzarding outside, but it's super exciting and amazing to be here. I know that we both have a really profound love for New York City, and it's really, really fun to be here yeah. with you together. This is yeah. our first time together it's cool. in and New York City. We've got some other nomads that are going to come by later. So that's that's kind exactly of exciting. right. We're having a little reunion yeah, little party reunion. later tonight yeah. after this, so we thought we'd just turn on the mics and do, uh, do another interview uh, <laughs> yeah. in the afternoon in the meantime. Wait, so, so back by popular demand, is that just your mom, basically? Or is there like, my mother's a big fan. Oh, yes. <laughs> She's a big fan, for sure. Um, but a lot of other people, it's really interesting. Um, a couple of my most recent podcast guests, I was asking them, um, you know, which episodes they've liked. And also some of the listeners who have listened to every episode, I asked them which ones did they like and what did they like about them. I'm almost through all your episodes, by the way. You have some really cool people on this show. Awesome. I mean, I know some of them, some personally biased on some of these, but, but, but I'm must say they're very very cool people it's but it's really read. interesting because most people mention your episode then i ask them what did you like about that episode and what's interesting to me is that a lot of people pull out very different pieces that they liked about they're like oh when she talked about this thing even though it's in a totally different space than what i'm in that really resonated with me and helped me with this thing in my life oh cool yeah so like it's been very interesting so a lot of people have pulled out different pieces of that episode oh. one and they have really appreciated Appreciated it. And, you know, as the episode aired and as you and I have continued to hang out around the world and have adventures and things like that, I also realized that there was a lot of stuff in that first episode that we didn't get to. I mean, it was like a 90 minute episode, yeah. but there was a lot more of the Mei Ling Lai story that we didn't even have time <laughs> to bring out, which, which I'm hoping we can do today. So one of which is just to sort of start with your backstory about growing up. I know you're a diehard New Yorker now and you're based in Manhattan, <laughs> but you are not originally from New York. Can you talk no. a little bit about your origin story, where you came from, and also your history with music and growing up? Okay, so it's actually very funny that you describe me as a hardcore New Yorker because I always think of myself as a small town girl living in the big city. It's been 12 years in the big city. And I think even when I was growing up, people were kind of like, you from New York? So even I think when I was living in Chicago, I think that might have been a question mark. But I was born in Ohio. I was the first Chinese baby, Asian baby, I think even, I think is the word they used, born in Lima County. And I left there when I was two. But before I left, when I was born, I made the paper because that was just so this thing that had never happened. And then my parents ended up settling in Florida because of another Asian family, a Chinese family. At the time, there were these things called Chinese tongs. And what they were were family associations. And there happened to be one branch that was in Tampa, Florida. And so there's a bunch of people in Florida that actually have my last name the way that I spell it, which is kind of a different sort of spelling in some ways. In other ways, it's really not. It's become more popular in recent times to always go with the Mandarin pronunciation no matter what. But the last name is actually pretty common among specifically Cantonese folks. So we ended up in central Florida, originally right outside of Tampa. And then we moved into Pasco County, which is also right outside of Tampa, but it's the weird right. It's more like the left, I guess, if you were to say it. Um, so there, my brother and I, my parents opened a little Chinese restaurant and my brother and I became the first Asian kids to attend public school. 
And we got in the paper for that too. So I was very famous, I like to say, by age five. I've already been in the paper twice. I feel really good about that. But to get to that, like the singing part, um, I know what you're trying to ask me. It has to do with like, where did it come from? What was the deal? My mother was actually a singer when she was very young in Canton. She's very, very talented, more operatic style. She's a belter, kind of, so to speak. So she was a very good singer. She didn't really encourage singing as a skill, but she did encourage piano. And when I was very young, she was afraid that I would be very shy. Yeah. I do, by the way, with that smirk on your face. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to hold how, how back long, the how laughter. Long that, how long did that fear last? Until you were like one? <laughs> like, at what point did that fear dissipate? No, 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 no. Okay, so so what she was concerned about, and I do still test introvert. There's a lot of introverts that have learned extroverted skills. And it's a good thing to learn what it'll look like on a test is, you know, if you take like a Myers-Briggs, for example, usually the scales are 100, negative 100, but they call one end introvert and they call the other end extrovert. What it will look like is your score towards introversion will just lower to zero at any given point. And so mine tends to be always skewed towards introvert, but single digit. So she was worried that I would be this massive introvert because I just, and we had a restaurant that wasn't going to work because when you are in a family business, everybody's got to toe the line, you know what I mean? Like you can't be like not nice to customers, not enjoyable to be, all these things. So she um, did the series of tiger mom things that thank God she doesn't listen to podcasts. So I'm going to share with you. <laughs> I've subsequently done a lot of these tiger mom things, unfortunately, or fortunately to people that have worked with me, because I do think that they did in fact work. But one of the major things she did is she had my brother and I performing as young as, I think the first time I took stage, I was like four and a half. Maybe I was five. Jolly old St. Nicholas duet with my brother. I will never forget. My brother was an amazing piano talent. Like it never did not make sense to him. He, his first recital was for release. It was a joke. I think he got bored in the middle of playing it. So he did a variation as part of the middle of unscripted, his, you know, and then there was me, <laughs> you know. And the other thing that I think is really brilliant about my mother is that she understood child care cost. So if she could get my brother, like my brother was getting gigs all the time because he's so cute, eight year old, plays for Elise or whatever he wants, you know, and we're in this area of Florida where there's a lot of these retirement homes that have evening entertainment. So they would hire him all the time. And my mother being frugal was like, oh, so you're going to pay to take my kid for an hour, two hours, three hours? How about I got two? You want another one? Like, so, to speak. <laughs> so, so that's how that worked out. They're like, well, it will, you know, like, and my brother's like, oh, no, no, they play together. They play together. Like, right. So, you know, that's how that started. And I'll never forget. I was really nervous going on stage. And my mom, she's sometimes she says the darndest things. I mean, I don't know that I maybe I might also have this attribute. I don't know, Matt, you tell me. She's like, don't worry about it. Look, if you can't be talented, try to be cute. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> to this day, I'm still like, well, you know, that's actually not the worst advice, even as an adult sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 
so, you know, we did that. And that first recital, I'll never forget, we practiced a lot so that I would be not nervous. And, you know, when you're four and a half, five, I think I must have been pretty sure that's what I was because there's pictures from this period of my life and that looks about the right age. I remember my brother made a mistake. My brother's part was like 20 times harder than my part. It was like not even close. I just had to play the same notes, left hand, right hand. So he made this little tiny mistake that only I could have noticed. And I like stopped playing and hit him and said, you messed up. And my brother looked at me in horror and said, okay, let's start from the top then. And then we just started it from the top, but not before the entire crowd was like in tears laughing. And it just, he, my brother is so talented. He just made it work. And then we got asked back every year thereafter until I was about 10. And then we started to move away from the city. But yeah, so we must have gigged like anywhere between 25 to 50 times a year, always practice on stage and what have you. And what that led to, and I, is, uh, you know, a really good skill in public speaking, you know, because once I turned 10 and my brother, people realized how unnervous my brother was to speak in public. We then did public speaking skills, classes. My mother, again, frugal. How about two, you know, so to speak? I get a discount for putting both of them in the class. How about that? If not, can she just sit there and watch? How about that? I give her credit, man. You know, if I had kids, I'd probably do the same thing. That's smart. That's amazing. I mean, one of the things that has been very prominent in my interactions with you over the last year or so since we've been hanging out around the world is your passion for singing and for karaoke. Literally, literally, (laughs) you and I will be on the Nomad Cruise, okay? And no matter what's going on, no matter what workshops or meetups or entertainment events or social outings, no matter what's going on, you will first and foremost figure out when the karaoke (laughs) hour or two hours is and you will attend to that every single night as your top priority and then you will schedule all of your other things around that. And so, you know, I know this of you and I know how passionate you are about singing about music. So I I would love to hear more about the evolution of that background as a kid coming up in terms of music and what that's meant to you. Okay, well, karaoke actually for me, just to answer just that portion of the question, it's a chance to practice being in front of an audience and knowing that they may or may not like you. Because, you know, in business or pretty much in anything in life, you do have to sometimes say some things and it does not matter what the audience says or how the audience is going to feel. But if you think about it with karaoke, especially in an audience like a cruise ship or wherever I'm doing it around the world, you have an audience, you know nothing about them right? You go into a business meeting, sometimes you have some context, but sometimes you don't. And especially if you're going to be a speaker or a guest speaker somewhere in a big lecture hall, you know, public speaking is something that is practiced. Oddly enough, karaoke is the same skill that you're practicing. So that aspect of karaoke is extraordinarily interesting to me. You get a lot of exercise with trying to maintain a certain voice quality because it will show immediately if you've lost confidence and lost the ability to control the audience or lost the ability to do whatever it is. All of that is practiced extremely well, in my opinion, in karaoke. That's why I actually love karaoke. Now, ability to sing is a different thing. And as many people know, ability to sing and love of karaoke are not necessarily correlated in any way, shape, or form. I actually, when I listen to other people sing karaoke that maybe are are not 
necessarily highly correlated love versus, I think bravery might be more correlated in that regard. You know, I love to see what other people do in their bouts of nervousness. I love to see whether uh, someone with zero talent somehow manages to kill it and why, what they're doing on their delivery that just pulls the entire audience in. I mean, that's fascinating public speaking knowledge that you can acquire. And it, people do it in very unique ways. There's probably similarities in, in, some, in some settings and other settings, there's nothing. So that aspect of karaoke, listening to other people is, is amazing. I also, because I think empathy is always a really important skill set when somebody's dying on stage, I do think it's really interesting to see what you can do as a single solo audience member to try to bring the audience back to that poor person who's suffering on stage. If you think about if you're in a corporate meeting or any kind of meeting and you've got some junior person who's presenting and you're the senior person, you got to try to keep them from losing confidence. A lot of times the words they're saying are just fine, but what can you do as the person there with your energy, with your just presence, whatever it is, to make that person feel comfortable doing their thing that they're clearly uncomfortable with. That's why I like karaoke. I mean, I'm sure no one has ever articulated it like that to others, but that really is why I go. That's really why I'm not, I, it doesn't matter how bad you sing, I will listen to it. I will not be negative, et cetera, you know? And I also think, and along those lines, yeah, not being negative, no matter how bad that person bombs is a skill. And you could practice the karaoke. So there's a lot to be learned. Zen and the art of karaoke. <laughs> you know, what have you. And I also love, as you know, when I travel around, observing other people's cultural behaviors. Because they can tell a lot about a country, about a culture. If there's something that you love to do and you're accustomed to being done a particular way in your home turf. And they're doing it differently in another country. This is actually interesting because I also want to preface this because I've been around the world with you in different countries where you've done karaoke and you are proficient in five different languages and you can do karaoke in different languages, which is really cool because when you go to like a Spanish speaking country oh, yeah. and then you can just drop Spanish songs and they go crazy because they don't know what to expect. Right? Oh yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. This is a Asian person. They're from America. They speak English. I mean, What's they, going they on? Have no idea. But oh, then yeah. you just drop. <laughs> Yeah. like an anthem that they and they just go crazy right in their language but when you are let's just say at an english speaking karaoke type of venue where you're going to do an english language song what are your some of your go-tos okay i'm going to double back because i don't think i fully answered that other question okay fully answered it okay yeah completely so you know what i'm practicing when i'm personally not when i'm listening to other people is i'm practicing do i understand the audience enough to select the right song and then sing it the way that it needs to go for that audience. You know, I've been practicing that since I was five. That's to the right. And the way that that maps back to any kind of skill that you're going to do in business is sometimes you get, you have a presentation and that's not going to fly because your audience, some new person entered the room that actually matters more, whatever. So I'm absolutely always first and foremost song selection. I am actually practicing actively that same business skill 100%. 
The second one is nervousness. Different audiences can make you nervous in different ways, different size audiences, the rowdiness level, the energy of the audience, who went on right before you. You got to practice that too. So that's what I actually like. Karaoke is just a extension of my mother's craziness for why we ended up on stage in the first place, which she wanted me to not have this introversion skill become this massive impediment to being able to communicate effectively in business, in life, whatever else going on, right? So that's a more complete answer. As a result, as you know, my go-to song then absolutely will vary depending on my audience. A lot of times, if you know, you, you have to kind of feel the audience out for their demographic and what they choose. The best way is to not go first. If you can help it, strategically, don't go first, right? See what the other person does. Either the audience is going to go for it or against it. If they go for it, you choose it right down their vein, right? If they go against it, then it's rolling the dice, Yahtzee, hopefully you, you, you don't fall flat, right? And if you fall flat, that's also something that you got to learn. Pick yourself up, get up, don't lose confidence in the middle. Those are all real skills. But like, for example, whereas some people, the reason this, this question of like, what are my go-to songs? It's always a hard one for me because that's what I'm doing. So like in every possible genre of music, I have a go-to song, right? So if it's, rock and roll, I will, if it's like rock song, rock song, rock song, I will usually pick Bobby McGee, Janis Joplin, right? If it's 80s, oh, I do have a whole series of songs. I might pick the Bangles. I might pick Sandy Lauper. I might pick anything from any of those, right? If it's, you know, if we're, if we're not doing ballads, but we're doing fast songs, I might pick like Janet Jackson. If we're going backwards in time, you know, forward in time, I might pick something Rihanna. You know, you have to like have go-to songs that match the audience. And I will say that that's really hard as you get older because you have to stay current with the current music, which means you got to actually know the song or you got to be able to fake it at least within a range. Okay. So based on the song selection for the audience, I am going to ask on behalf of the Maverick Show audience, (laughs) if you can pick a song that you can do now, acapella. For the Maverick Show. For the Maverick Show. You better think, think about what you're trying to do to me. Think, let your mind go, let yourself be free. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go back, way on back then. I didn't even know you, I could have been too much more than 10. I ain't no psychiatrist, I ain't got no doctor's degree. But it don't take too much IQ to see what you're doing to me. You better think. Think about what you're trying to do to me. You better think. Let your mind go. Let yourself be free. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Wow. Thank you for that. That was awesome. (laughs) That was an amazing choice, too. A tribute to Aretha. (laughs) So amazing. Thank you. Let me ask you this, actually, in terms of tributing amazing women, what would you say if you were to, you know, thinking back on your relationship with your mother for all these years, what would you say that if you could pick maybe one or two things in terms of her influence on you that you have learned from her or taken from her and really chosen proactively to embody in yourself? 
what would be the top one or two things? Oh my that- God, I am her in so many ways. <laughs> like, come on. Like, I am my mother's child. It's not even confusing to anyone that knows us both. Well, that's why, that's, <laughs> that's kind of why I'm asking about the conscious part of it, right? Because a lot of times we adopt things from our parents. You know, some of them might be, you know, positive, negative, conscious, unconscious, that kind of stuff. But consciously, I mean, in terms of things that you admire and appreciate, about your mother that you have consciously learned from her or chosen to embody in your own life? You know what? It's, she's such a tiger mother that like there is no conscious learning. It just all got pushed into you when you were very young. There's a lot more conscious unlearning, I think, than there is conscious learning. We always, I mean, and it's every hope of every parent, I'm sure, for you, for your, the child to be some improvement I would say the one thing that I acknowledge about my mother that I love, and I love that, like, I understand that it's possible, one, and two, have really pursued it, is my mother's English is imperfect. She didn't go to school. She just worked really hard and tried to make it happen when she was, when she immigrated over. But she is funny in, like, any language that she speaks. Like, if you are hanging out with my mother and there's a crowd around her, which there always is because she's not an introvert at all, not even close. People love her. <laughs> my mother can make anyone laugh in any language. And sometimes she does it on purpose. And sometimes it's just, she's just really funny, <laughs> you know, so to speak. So I think like that's really important to understand when you're speaking a foreign language or when you're traveling abroad or whatever is that like perfection does not help you in communication. Communication is communication. It's independent of any kind of of that stuff. So I, whenever I'm speaking a foreign language, I kind of keep that in mind. Go easy on yourself a little bit. Awesome. That's a really good lesson. Let me ask you about this. Another thing in terms of your background that I'm really curious to ask you about is your marathon running. Marathon running. Yeah. So it was interesting because it's something that I started doing for stress reduction. In all fairness, I had in my 20s established a goal of wanting to run a marathon before I turned 35. And so I did achieve that goal. Eh, I'll call it a wash because I achieved it at 35 versus before 35. So we'll just count it even though it was technically supposed to be before 35, but you know, for everyone out there that's turning 40, trying to do it on their 40th, I'm gonna give you full credit all the way to 41, baby. As far as it goes, it's totally good by me. I'm in. So um, I ran my first half and full when I was 35 or 34 and 35, something like that, same year. And I ended up really liking it. The interesting things that I've learned subsequently is the reason I liked it is there is a thing called meditation in motion. For those that really struggle to meditate, it turns out that if you go to an ashram in India, which one of my dear friends did, so she's the one that came back and told me that's what was happening, they will tell you that if you can achieve a meditative state by being extremely physically active to where you jar, your, your brain rates hit the same thing, hit the same sort of meditative, like mind. I don't know. There's some, this gets really sciencey beyond my knowledge. There's articles on this, but that's what was actually happening while I was running distance was I was hitting meditative state. Then lo and behold, like two years later, my friend drags me to a meditation yoga retreat, which is so not my deal if you know me as a person to just spend that quality time. But it is absolutely my deal to go away on a traveling trip with female friends to connect. So that so that's how they really got me. But during the meditation session, I had no at that point not realized how difficult meditation was for everybody. 
so like more than half the group had dropped out. And I think towards the end of the meditation portion, it was down to me and this girl who I really loved dearly and wanted to, you know, wanted to, she was the person that had dragged me there. It was just the two of us and we were meditating away. And then at the end, you know, I was like, oh, how nice. And she does this little ceremony. She's like, you know, you guys are really good at meditation. And that's when I realized that the running was what was allowing me to know what the brain was supposed to be feeling in order to then do meditation without the motion. So that's what the running was in a lot of ways all about. You know, subsequent to that first half in the full, I've probably, I showed you the medals. There's over 20 half marathons, probably closer to 30 halves, three fulls. I've done them in like maybe a half a dozen countries or so. I, I'd have, really have to count, but I think it's at least a dozen, if not more. That's awesome. That's a really cool piece of the travel because I know you've also been continuing to take some really interesting trips and have a lot of really interesting experiences since our last interview. Um, and oh, I, wanna, yeah. I want you to be able to share some of those trips and some of those experiences. You just got back just last week from Rome. Yeah. Right? It was your first time in Rome. Yeah, it was cool. Vatican City is really something interesting. I mean, like Vatican City, it's weird because it's not spiritual in the way that other places are spiritual. At least from my perspective, it is holy. And like specifically the Sistine Chapel, especially if you get there before the crowd, is very profound. But it's a different sort of feeling than like when you go to other places of great historical spiritual significance. I think it's because it almost has mixed within it Vatican. Like you have a the spirituality, but you also have this massive political feeling that also is the emotional state of the buildings that you're going to be in. Uh, so it's a really unique place. They really did steal the best art globally. I think that was really funny because you'd see an obelisk. You'd be like, oh, I know where that's taken from. You know, <laughs> I saw that. That's actually, there's like a copy of that now in Turkey, right? <laughs> Something like that, no matter where you're at. And that is the unfortunate, but also fortunate thing about traveling around, having that curse of knowledge because you've been on so many tours where they'll be like, and this used to be whatever, the actual one now stands in Rome. The actual one now stands in Florence. And you're like, oh, now I'm trying to like read data back and fill this obelisk to that monument that I saw. Yeah, wow, good condition, you know, so to speak. And they're not the only ones. I mean, the Taiwanese took a bunch of the stuff before the communists came into China. And in doing so, they did actually, uh, even the Chinese mainlanders will admit, save the, the, a lot of amazing artifacts from definitive destruction that would have happened during the communist revolution or the cultural revolution. So it's not the end of the world, but it is very, like, some of the best art is in Rome. And especially even, like, you think Roman statues. If you're outside of Rome, a lot of them are defaced in some way, literally, <laughs> you know, the, you're going to get full, complete sculptures there as they were intended to be seen. It's a pretty um, phenomenal place. And then, I don't know, like they just somehow avoided a lot of the other ancient city destruction stuff. So the history is profound, even if you're not a history buff. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you also, on the last episode, which listeners will remember if they listen to it or go back and to listen to it, when I asked you about your favorite cities in the world, the one that came up first, I believe, to your mind that you named immediately was Kuala Lumpur. And, oh, yeah, I love Kale. Yeah, Kale's awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that since our last interview, and you and I both spent a lot of time in yeah. Kale, and I know you try to go there pretty regularly. And when you went 
to KL after we did the last interview, went back to KL. Yeah, I hung out with Dan Sloan. You remember Dan Sloan? Yeah. From, yeah, he was there. We awesome. hung out. We went to the um, speakeasy together. That's awesome. Yeah, he's awesome. You did do the speakeasies finally. Yeah, we did. That's of course, awesome. I took your advice. That's awesome. I pay attention to the Maverick show. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, friends, if you need speakeasy advice, I think... Matt should post it. On the, in, we post in, that in the links for the for the viewers. In Kuala, in Kuala, <laughs> in Kuala Lumpur, Lumpur. Anyway, yeah, we yeah. can post our favorite speakeasies in Kuala All right, Lumpur. Done. Boom. Um, but you also sent me um, an amazing story, which I want you to tell, which goes along with advice that I always give to travelers, and I always say to people that when you go to different countries and even different cities, you should always, 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 always talk to your taxi driver or your Uber driver yeah, and have that conversation because it will often turn into one of the most interesting and memorable conversations you might have in the entire city. Oh yeah. You got to talk to strangers if you're traveling, especially if you're traveling solo. Yeah. And cab drivers are an amazing way to do that. Yeah. You're stuck. And as long as they're not creepy as a woman, you should totally talk to them. The one though in KL that I know you're referring to is the, the sailor. You need to yeah. you need to tell this story. You get into yeah. a, you get into a taxi in KL and you start talking. Oh to yeah, your so I go into driver. the taxi and the driver, and especially in Asia, because if you're this kind of driver, a popular car service driver, then you would necessarily speak really good English at a very different level than even the native population of Malaysia, which is the eighth best English speaking country in the world. I think you have to look. I'm sure they're re upping these things all the time. Anyways, I got in and this guy actually was on shore leave. He was a commercial, not a captain, the next level down, but very, very senior on commercial ships. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome that you're here in Malaysia. Let's just give you something to do. He's like, yeah, I get bored otherwise. And I kind of like driving around. I'm like, well, you got any interesting stories from the high seas? And he's like, well, yeah, you know have you seen this movie? I still haven't seen this movie. And I was like, no. And he's like, well, it's about pirates held up this ship, Somalian pirates held up the ship in that there's this pass in uh, that gets you from Africa to Europe. And he was like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. That happened to you? He's like, yeah, it's based off of our crew. <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, well, it might not be just our crew. I think there's another ship also that was held, but they had to pay eventually a million dollars to release us. I was like, wow, how long were you out there? He's like, three weeks. I was like, three weeks? What was going on on the boat? He's like, well, they take your underwear. I'm like, okay, so you're sans souci, I guess, while you're there. You know, he's like, no, not the pants, just, you know, underwear. He's like, so they take his underwear, they take all the um, stuff. So you fight it out for the first day, but then they do all these things to try to stop you from fighting after the first week. That whole portion is done while they radio over and try to negotiate whatever is the captive thing. And yeah, then eventually after three weeks, they let him go. And I was like, well, what's it like? Is it just scary? Are they saying, he's like, no, you know, you just kind of go about your business every day, you know, but they're watching you. I was like, guns. He's like, yeah, they're watching you with guns. I was like, well, what'd you do to pass the time? He's like, oh, you know, just regular stuff. I was like, would you karaoke on the boat? He's like, yeah, actually we did. <laughs> and I was like, because, you know, I like to karaoke to see the different cultures. I was like, well, what was it like karaoke with the Somalians? He's like, well, they were more like listening. And then there was a, I was like, because, you know, I think it's, I was like, yeah, I think that speaks a lot to the Malaysian people. you like, being held up at gunpoint will not stop the karaoke. He's like, exactly, girl, exactly. I don't care what's happening. You point a gun at me, I will sing, no problem. Uh, but it was a pretty amazing 40, 45 minute cab ride into the city with this gentleman. He was brilliant. He was really smart. Gave me a lot of great restaurant recommendations because he was a local. But yeah, you got to talk to your cab drivers. 
Oh man, there's so many good. What's a good over story that you've had? What's your best one? I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Oh, I don't know. I always just get really interesting insights, right? Because one of the other things that I'll do, in addition to asking about stories or things like that, is also just to ask their opinions. So for example, if you live in a place like Egypt... No, wow. And you ask their opinion of what's your opinion of the political situation that's going on? And you just, and then, I mean, <laughs> they won't get they're nuts. all like, I mean, you just give them a platform and they will tell you like all oh, yeah. of this stuff. Or what's your opinion of, you know, this stuff, you know, but also the, the recommendations, like you said, you know, I mean, when I was yeah. coming into, I was in Nairobi, Kenya earlier this year and, you know, my ride into the city from the airport, I mean, you know, you let them know what you're looking for. Oh, the best clubs are this and this and the other best restaurants. Make sure you go here and, you know, and you let them know you kind of want the non touristy yeah, places, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like where do you, Go. go. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, well, I go here. And this is, you know, so you, you really get all that stuff. And then, like, they'll give you very candid opinions about everything from the political situation to like anything else. And it's just interesting to listen to that, you know, local perspective and have a really candid yeah. person who has no self interest in what you care about their opinion. Like, they don't care what you think of no. their opinion. They're just willing to yeah, render it. You're in it. their car, buddy. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you're they're, you're they're, their audience yeah. for as long as that meter's running. They're just, <laughs> they love that you're willing to listen to their opinion yeah. on things and you're learning stuff for everything they're willing to tell you. So yeah, I'll just it. usually like open the questions and, and, and prompt responses. So that's... I uh, love it. I had one guy who told me that he, um, he was retired in Florida. I was in Florida and he had sold his business. The reason he was an Uber driver is his wife wanted him out of the house. She's like, you, you gotta go. You gotta go find something else to do. Not here. So he was, he liked to drive. So he became an Uber driver, Vietnamese guy, but they had moved from like outside of DC and he had a mixed martial arts business. But then he had, because he had made that so successful, it was running like half a million dollars in revenues before he sold it. Like revenue and he wasn't even anywhere near cost because he paid off the buildings, whatever. That's how he ended, he ended up retiring very young as well. I thought that was fascinating. But the fun part of it was that because he had done this mixed martial arts business for so long, he had actually became a mixed martial arts agent. So he still had that business going around and pieces of it. And this was my Uber driver. Like, you don't know who's your Uber driver. This is why, you know, if, if you didn't listen to your mama about always treating anyone that's working with you, for you, or otherwise with, like, respect and, and goodness, like, just realize, especially your Uber driver could literally be anyone. It could be, like, whatever millionaire who's just like, ah, let me just see. I need randomness in my life. I own this car. Let me just drive around and see what's up. And it's crazy. 
It's actually very interesting. Yeah, totally. I've had podcast guests on my show that we were talking about, you know, how they were building their business. And, you know, they're like, yeah, I was driving Uber on the side while I was building my business and I was giving out, you know, stuff for my yeah. business to my, you know, this. And then now- You don't know who your Uber driver's going to be. They're, they're, you know, guests on the Maverick show and, and, and have blown up and are doing super interesting stuff. So, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's always a really interesting conversation to have. So that's my, that's one of my top travel recommendations for people. Totally. It's um, a good one. It's to always, always do that. So- all right, let's shift gears now because I want to talk about this new speed reading course that you have just put out. And maybe we could start with what motivated you to kind of your history with speed reading, why you taught yourself to speed read, the benefits <laughs> of that, um, and maybe just start with kind of that background and leading up into what made you decide to create the course. Okay, so the speed reading course, interestingly, it was a consulting project that I was working on, this wonderful, very highly regarded tutor here in New York City, Katya Sieperson. She and I had been working on a couple of different things that she wanted to know about her business and how to think about it. But ultimately, as a total aside, we started working on this course together. It came out that we were both, like she, I knew was teaching speed reading. That's actually how we met originally. And um, she didn't really know way, way at the very beginning. She didn't know about my whole speed reading thing. And because we were like, we were friends or whatever. And she used to tell me that she could speed read. I was like, okay, that's cool. You know, but unbeknownst to her, like I really did want to create a course for at least improved speed on reading. I didn't actually even know that speed, what constituted real speed reading and what wasn't real speed reading. And then she said something and then I was like, all right, well, test me. I want to understand what you're doing on the speed reading side. And she tested me and it was strange because it came up to like 2,400 words per minute just on a couple of the different tests. She was like, whoa, you know, and I didn't realize that speed reading is anything really, I mean, you can, there's not really a great definition for speed reading, but the way that we ended up defining it was anything over like 500 words per minute. So I'm well over speed reading at that point, because at 500 words per minute, you're at like 60 pages an hour or something like that. And you can read a book in like four hours and you probably have a college level like you've been reading a lot for college, et cetera. And that's probably where I started was post-college, you know, and it's really going to be in specific areas that you can read that speed. But I had no idea. Her reading ability was somewhere around on the low end, she'd be like 700. On the high end, she was going to be 1,500. Like that would be a book that she's that's in a specific sweet spot for her. So when she saw my score, she was like, what the hell? Like, what's going on for lack of a better way to say, like, you really read, you know, so we did the comprehension test and everything. And I'm like, no, no, I got, yeah. Um, but, you know, as I ended up working with her, and I was like, we should really do a project like this because I didn't realize, number one. And number two, she made me aware after the test of like what she had been dealing with, the types of chicanery that's out there to teach speed reading. And then, you know, the more that I worked on the course and developing the course with her, the more I became adamant that it really should exist as a body of knowledge if somebody wanted to acquire it. So a lot of courses think of speed reading as some activity separate from reading. It's not. What you're actually doing is accentuating the existing reading skills you have, filling in whatever gaps the public school education failed to do for a lot of reasons. You know, what's being done to public school education system. I'm sure there's a lot of people. It's very controversial. I'm not going to get into that controversy here. But no question in my mind, we definitely teach people a bare minimum and then pray that they acquire the rest of it 
as relates to reading magically through the ether. And some people do, a lot of people do, you know, this whole body of people that graduate from liberal arts colleges who must read at minimum of two books a week plus in order to get through that body of people, hundred percent, but it leaves behind this whole trail of other people because that portion that actually goes the liberal arts way and not STEM way or whatever, you know, it just gets left behind. And the sad thing about it, because we are stressing STEM so much, is that we don't even acknowledge what that takes away from what people have access to in the way of knowledge, right? So if we're going to enter this new economy where thinking is going to be a major skill set, not coding in and of itself, not programming something really technical, not engineering, but actually thinking the art of having thoughts the ability to take idea A and map it to idea B, right? Then something like reading as a skill for many reasons, which is hugely dependent on not long-term memory, which you'll see in a lot of speed reading courses, but associative memory, which has nothing to do with anything. It's the ability to take ideas, put them together, and then put them into working memory and do something with them, right? That is actually exercised far more aggressively with reading than it is with all the sciences, period. In fact, what is the point of science if it is not applied to the human condition or human problems or other? I mean, look, you know, very few people are doing highly theoretical math with zero application in reality. Okay. It turns out if you go through the history of pretty much any science or math, and I I mean, I don't know this 100%, but I'm pretty sure from, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I can say this safely. All that science was inspired by someone trying to solve something. And in the solving of that something, they probably had to read a little bit about what had already been done, different ways of coming at the problem. Maybe they read other things that just were completely unrelated. All of that reading stuff is really important. Anyway, as a skill, it has a tremendous amount of value. Now, what does it actually physically look like as a skill that I cared enough to want to create a course about it, even independent of meeting Katya in advance of meeting Katya? It looked like basically I go to a client. In advance of going to the client, there's this huge history that predates the client, right, that is actually documented. Let's say they're a public company. So I could, I'm going to use a fake example. Let's say it was Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola, there's many books written on the entire history of Coca-Cola from the time it was founded through the marketing that's been done, et cetera. There's also a mountain of filings that they've done with uh, the SEC, all their financial papers, annual reports, et cetera. At my speed, I can read, and I'm going to have to do this actually for a project that I'm on right now. I can read an annual, a 90 to 100 page, 100 page annual report only takes me about 15 minutes to read. It's like big nothing, donut, snap. In fact, when I was at the Vatican, there was a wait time before going into the Sistine Chapel because I was early and there was a guidebook sitting there on the Sistine Chapel. It was about 150 pages long, but mostly pictures, 50 pages of text. I read the whole damn thing in 10 minutes before I walked in. And it was helpful because I'll tell you what, the guide itself only went through two of the four artists that are actually known to be like main arbiters of the area. There's also another set of artists as well that supported those artists, but that was all explained in the book. It was not explained explain in the six different esque plus or minus modules that were in the little ear thing. And the two together really gave me a great sense for the Sistine Chapel. You know what I mean? You can do stuff like that. That took me about somewhere 10 minutes or so. I was really sleepy. You know what I mean? So like you can do stuff like that when you are a speed reader, no problem. Katya and I, 
when we were working together, did things like, well, before we do this segment, let's read up on it. I would go to the New York Public Library, which is an amazing resource that every New Yorker has. I would look up whatever I could in the card catalog. I would, and I, for example, we identified one book, about 170-ish pages, something like that. No illustrations, so that's fair. We'll call it 170. I emailed her the PDF of the book. This was like noon. Went home, walked. It was a beautiful sunny day, 30 minutes. Had lunch, read the book, walked over to office. Something around like four o'clock, right? We sit down and we read the book and we talk about the book and how it relates to the section that we're about to create. And the conversation isn't, oh, did you like it? I liked it. Did you like it? No. The conversation was, all right, page 68, paragraph two. The way that they say that seems to be better than the way that we're articulating. I think we need to incorporate that. What about you? She's like, page 98, let's look at this because I really like this chapter right here, how it's going through and laying out this. Like these are real full conversations, full comprehension. And, you know, that's what I would have loved to have had for my team, even if they didn't get to 100%, just having them feel the confidence that they could sit down and read 178 pages, even if they were half that speed, if they could read it in two and a half hours, right? Two and a half hours doesn't feel like you want to kill yourself. But a lot of people are reading closer to 100 words per minute. So that book would have maybe taken them a, a like five, six hours. Don't quote me. I have to do the math. But maybe it would take them like six, seven hours, something like that. You know, there's just a lot of use cases for it. I had one client one time tell me, we were having a conversation and there was some way that I was speaking jargon wise that was just completely in contrast to the way the team that he had built with a lot of effort and thoughtfulness was talking about actually database management. And he acknowledged that there was certain subject matter expertise that I had that would be ideal for what his team was trying to do. To his credit, quite frankly, because other thing that I was doing that was really obnoxious was I was using the jargon and the way of thinking. And so the jargon overlap was mistaken. I would use word X, it meant word Y to all these people. And he was, he told me, he took me after the meeting. He said, look, I can't have you come back and talk to my team until you read this entire book on, it's written by Kimball. It's an amazing data warehousing book, 600 plus pages long, 650, something like that. Textbook, right? Big. He's like, I need you to read this book before you come back next time to my office. It's like, oh, okay. So I bought the book and it took about two and a half hours to read it. And then I came back and I was like, this is a great book. I get it. I understand why your whole team is building around this. And now I understand where what I'm saying is super confusing and completely just making your team want to kill themselves a little bit. I actually made my entire team read it because, you know, if you look at my books, you'll see that I've highlighted and tabbed them. And the reason I tabbed them that way, and there's notes, I take all the, there's like, anyways, whatever. Uh, But I tabbed them that way because I knew that my speed might be a little faster than others. And there were certain sections that I wanted to if you could not read the whole book, please, young analyst Padawan, just be able to reference this one section and let that inspire you to read additional sections because I promise you, you know. So, but yeah, I wouldn't have been able, that book might have taken a person 19 hours if they could actually read it straight. See, this is the thing that's deceiving is that speed reading is like marathon running, right? Running for two hours is different prospect from running for five hours, right? You got different things to consider. If you're running for two hours, you're hungry at the end, but you don't have to eat in the middle, right? If you're running for five hours, you got to eat in the middle. You have a whole different set of concerns that will then necessarily slow you down. You got to carry stuff, you know, 
Meb, he ain't carrying anything when he's running the marathon for the Olympics. He's just going forward. He's coming right there at two hours. So he can stand without food for two hours and run along. But the average typical person is going to carry gels. They got all this extra equipment to make it work, et cetera, right? Same thing with reading, strangely enough. If you can read straight for two hours, that's a long time to sit and not have any like water, but it's not impossible. You know, like you can actually sit for two hours and do an activity and not pee. But can you sit there for 19 hours and not have to sleep at some point? (laughs) Of course, of course not. So your 19 hours is not just 19 hours. It's 19 hours plus rest breaks, plus pee break, plus food, plus et cetera. You may or may not ever get it done. Also, because it only takes me two and a half hours, I get one complete thought. You get the same thought chopped up over however long it takes you. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the misnomers are about speed reading and some of the popular misconceptions about what speed reading is and how to go about trying to learn it and all that kind of stuff? And then the approach that you and Katya take in the course as an alternative? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest misnomer is when it's presented as a series of hacks that you can do magically that will like make you so somehow brighter. Because it's not. It's actually expanding your skill for reading. You know, you actually have to learn to read properly, which is difficult because a lot of people believe strongly that they can read properly. And yeah, you can. There's just a better way to do it. Just like everyone can run. But, you know, if you're going to then run a marathon, you're going to have to learn some things or else you may actually hurt yourself and never achieve the goal that you're trying to achieve. Okay, that's one Two, there's a lot of these, like a lot of these hacks that are involved in these people that teach it are actually switching the material on you. So they're giving you harder material. And then on the magical period and point that you're finally reading so much faster, you actually have something with a lower reading level. And that's what's actually making you read faster. That's really depressing to me because that really is embarrassing for the fact that it I mean, it'd be like, all right, I'm gonna run you downhill now and see how much faster, you know, that's not cool. That's just not cool because now you believe that you can't do it when you then realize that you've been tricked. Why? That sucks. You know, then there's a lot of what I call half-truths. So some people have this finger method where they tell you to use your finger and that actually doesn't help you read faster. What it does is if focus is your major issue, it can, can, Not necessarily, depending on what other issues you have correlating to it, it might help you focus better. It might not also too, because it might be massively distracting. I will tell you though, you read only with your eyes. And when I'm at full speed, I could not possibly also do that finger thing because I would not have enough time to turn the page. So I would get slowed down because if I had to do that and turn the page, I'm reading way too slow at that point. Also, it is not a trade-off between comprehension and speed. That'd be like Meb is trading off between miles and speed. Like, that doesn't even make sense. No, like you can't, it's not a trade-off. Like comprehension is comprehension. Now, comprehension is not memorization. That's a mis- big misnomer. Like, it's like this. You got a lot of kids. They can regurgitate the preamble to the constitution. They know what it means. They comprehend it. Okay, and then which one was it that you were trying to do? If you're trying to memorize it, yeah, that's not this course, right? If you're trying to do we the people of the United States, you know, you'd have to memorize it, right? If you're trying to understand it, yeah, you should not be failing to understand it by the time you're done reading it. And in fact, that's um, in in skill number three, we start to talk about that, but then it's driven home um, by skill number seven, as well as like some of the um, strategies that we suggest you take. And that's really the ability to take an idea from 
not just one word to another word, but from one sentence to another sentence, from a paragraph to another paragraph, and really hold that idea correctly in your mind to drag you all the way through logical argument, which is a very advanced concept. And in terms of how you have the course structured chronologically and the types of skills and techniques that people should be working on in order, like from wherever they are now with their reading speed, what is, if you can just give sort of an overview of the course structure and just the general chronology of the types of skills and techniques that people should be working on in order to accelerate their reading speed? We divide them into two sets, the essentials and the mechanics. And the essentials are those core basic skills that we know for a fact most school systems did not teach in their entirety. And the the three parts to that, the first one is decoding, which is the ability to see the word and know that it is an English language word and what sounds it corresponds to. We're not even getting to meaning yet. Some people have difficulty with that, particularly those that have been diagnosed with dyslexia. And some people truly do have dyslexia, but some people just have a weak phonetic development. They were sick when they were a kid, whatever happened, but they just didn't have enough time to learn that skill when they were like between ages five to seven. Most school systems cut it off at seven, any teaching of phonetics, which is crazy because we don't even teach complete phonetics to begin with in the majority of public school systems. Without phonetics, though, you will not decode. And without that ability, you will necessarily read slower because you're only reading with half of your major tools in order to read. Like you basically cannot, you, it's really kind of fascinating. The second one is vocabulary. A lot of people have an underdeveloped vocabulary, you know, especially if you're like myself and immigrant parents where vocabulary wasn't, uh, was something that you learned wholly from outside of the family unit. That's a big one. And then even as you enter your workplace, a lot of times people are throwing around jargon, but you're too embarrassed to ask what that word actually means. And then over the course of months, everybody doesn't know what it means. And so they're all using it incorrectly. You, the poor managing director, have to sit there and be like, guys, let's actually go through what this word actually means. (laughs) You know, you're shaking your head. So you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They use the word because everybody's using the word to sound clever. So vocabulary. The third thing is what we call structure. And structure encompasses grammar, but it's also structure. So like if you have a sentence that begins with neither and nor, your brain can actually recognize that pattern to know exactly how to pull the essential meaning out of the sentence very differently than if you don't see neither nor. And this is actually interesting because one of the major exercises, and you are closer to my age, so you might find this fascinating. One of the major, major exercises for structure is no longer taught as of, it was pulled from the school system curriculum around the 70s. And some people continue to teach it, but now it's not taught at all. It's called sentence diagramming. Do you ever come across sentence diagram? They don't teach it at all now period. Wow. Like kids these days would not, the millennials, if you know it, you're in the minority. Whereas like you're about my age, you know what sentence diagramming is, right? You had to do it. Of course. Yeah. So sentence diagramming is actually a core skill to being able to understand really, really long sentences because really, really long sentences are not written in basic format. So it's going to be like pretty much every really important author or not important, that's not the right word, like classic Arthur. If you find that you can't read any of the classics without slowing all the way down, it's probably this skill right here. And then from there, the mechanics are things that have a feel to them. You just have to get it right. And then once you feel them, just like in sports, focus is one of them. Focus has a feel to it. It's hard to explain. 
The next one is visual perception. Oh, I forgot what it's called. Perceptual span. And that has some components to it. That's like, what actually is it you're supposed to looking at? And if you can't do that, what does that mean that you have to exercise in order to develop that perceptual span? Some people here in the flawed courses or in the courses that I, I don't agree with necessarily will say that you just need to blink like crazy or move your eyes or keep them wide open or something. None of that is true. You're blinking because your mind is trying desperately to capture meaning. That's actually telling you something. In that section, we'll describe what you do and how you interpret that and how you correct that. The third thing is subvocalization. That's talking in your head. You don't actually need to do that. And in order to train yourself, sometimes you'll do it for good reason and sometimes you won't. And we'll talk about what's the right way to do it, what's the wrong way to do it, how you train yourself out of it. That's that section. And then the seventh is advanced pattern recognition. And that's really... Um, how do you outline a paragraph? How do you outline a whole book? And you will work on advanced pattern recognition for the rest of your life. And the degree to which you can do it will dictate your speed. So when I started, oh, I never even got to this portion of your question, which is when I started speed reading, it was because I was running a billion dollars and it was right into the economic crisis and I didn't have any answers. You know, you can find tons of people to explain to you how to manage money when the markets are going up. Markets are going down. Everybody's got great guesses. That's not helpful when you got to watch your P&L swing a few million dollars up and down every day because you got market volatility, you might, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Point is, I needed some answers. I need them fast. So I just started reading. Like I, the only thing I knew that of, of the people that I admired at the firm that I was at, Chilton Investment Company, was that they were avid readers. Warren Buffett's an avid reader, and they would quote him all the time as to why they were reading. So I just started reading ridiculous amounts of material. And it was through that exercise, my brain just started to develop pattern recognition differently. I probably went from a three to 500 word per minute reader by the end of that two years. Over the course of two years, I think I read close to 250 books to cover the gap of this goal that I had. But over that period, that doesn't include white papers. It's not the only thing I was reading at the time. I've like stacks and stacks and stacks of white papers, then the actual material every day, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. So I was just like, constantly reading. And I wasn't sleeping much either, by the way. Anyways, during that period of time, I became a speed reader. I was probably at like close to 2000. And then I continued to develop it over the next whatever period of time, university, et cetera. How long is the actual course itself in terms of the actual video modules? It's divided into three modules and an intro currently, the um, essentials, the mechanics, and then a strategy section. Yeah, it's, about, um, it's eight hours of video courses. Yeah. It's broken into modules. Yeah, And so then if you go through all the eight hours of video content, you'll learn all these different techniques skills. and mechanics and yeah. skills. Yeah, And then you'll practice a lifetime. Yeah, You know, I'm not trying to give you a quick fix, but this is actually how you would fix it if you were really legitimately trying to acquire the skill. These would be the skills. And then some of them you have, some of them you might want to practice. Right. And then what is the potential? Obviously, it varies by person and all that kind of stuff. But if somebody has a, a definitely a non-speed reading speed, they're 300 words a minute or something like that. Whatever, pretty good. 200 something, whatever the, whatever the average kind of person is, if for that type of person to accelerate their reading or double their reading speed or kind of get to the point where they can make significant improvements, <laughs> what kind of practice time frame would you say would be sort of on average? I mean, it's hard to say, like in a month and a week, it depends how low, if you're, the lower your score, to the extent that there's not a medical issue, like you real, you have true dyslexia, you know, the, there's probably, the, the speed at which you will 
double is much faster because it's just a lower number. If you're at like 1,500 to get you to 2,400, I don't know the answer to that. That's just going to take systematic methodology of doing it. I think mine doubled within like three to six months easily when I was first starting out. And then if I really, like right now I'm a little bit slower, but I'm still not slow. I'm like 2,000, 2,400. If I needed to re-up it, it would probably take me a week of just actually reading to get back there. It's just practice. It's really, it's legitimately going to feel like a sport when you're through it. And then once you have that speed, you're not going to, your new reset speed is way higher. Like, it would take so much for me to read under 700 words per minute right now. And I don't mean that in any kind of cocky way at all. And trust me, at 700 words per minute, I feel the same way that you feel at 100 words per minute if that's your slow speed. But I would say definitely you will see improvement. If you really do work at it, I could easily see a double in like a month. If you have a true decoding issue, though, you probably should see someone. Right. Awesome. Well, we are definitely going to link up the direct link to your course in the show notes so people can go and check that out. Let me ask you this, in terms of your current kind of business projects and things that you're working on, and maybe we should even just start with the workshop that you and I co-facilitated on the Nomad (laughs) Cruise. Oh yeah, that's fun. Which was super cool. We called it an entrepreneur hot seat. And we had anybody, any business owners or entrepreneurs could come up and take the hot seat and ask you and I for business. They, they could basically pose their biggest question, challenge, or obstacle. And then you and I would strategize with them about that in front of the group. Yeah. Which was the format. So what were your sort of reflections or takeaways on that workshop and what we experienced there? I think a lot of people have very interesting businesses and I'm excited to see everyone try to achieve those goals. You know, there's only so much that you can learn about a business in that format. In more of the other work that I do, I would typically take a lot more time to inventory and understand. Same thing for you too. If you're trying to dig in, you really dig in. That said, it's really interesting once you see full cycle, what can happen from the beginning of a business to the middle of the business, the end of the business, what types of advice you give like how you really think about it. For the most part, a lot of the folks that we that came to the hot seat had never done a full cycle. Three, like they'd never started, they'd either never started a business or they'd been a part of the starting of a business, but didn't know like where it should go or what it should do strategy wise. You know, they were missing therefore then a whole mess of experiences on funding, on communication, et cetera. Um, and it's just really interesting to think and see after you've already lived through the cycle you know, how you think about it differently from the folks that are going to live through the cycle and be extremely accomplished entrepreneurs, you know. For sure. And I know you do a bunch of business consulting now and you're able to cherry pick projects that you think A, are cool and fun and B, where you can add a lot of value. How do you sort of self-assess your personal business skills? What are your top kind of area of, of expertise, both that you're really good at, but also that you really like working in? So when you're evaluating, let's say a business consulting project, you what makes you kind of light up and say, I could really help here and this is cool? Yeah. I mean, when you do a business consulting project, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. For me, I uh, don't ever want to do something where I'm not adding value. You know, what's the point? Hey, I, I was an entrepreneur. I was on the other side. There's no way that I would take value for no reason. There are some people that will do that. That's I'm not just trying to extract my specific brand of value out. You know, so I always look for projects where I really feel I could add value. So then what is the value that I add? You know, I think 
it's interesting because it's primarily strategy consulting that I think I do these days. The oddity of what I recently discovered is probably a secondary value as a strategy person is the analytical data background. And it's kind of like mixed with the fact that through the virtue, by, you know, by whatever odd mixture of life happen, you know, being able to see companies and actually investigating and forcibly thinking about companies IPOing and growing then thinking about what would make those companies lose value from running the short portfolio, you know, the two directional, right, is really, is really a rare forced systematic skill that I think people have the opportunity to be forced to learn for better or for worse. So that really feeds into strategy in a way that might be very different from other folks. You know, a lot of times too, the types of roles that I end up being pulled into typically are uh, consulting with C-levels or acting as interim kind of C-level person. In a lot of ways, what you're trying to do is talent management. So you've got a company you're missing kind of a strategy or alternatively you have a strategy, but executing it is difficult because the communication of that strategy, it's just beyond the staff that you have. You know, staff and really brilliant and talented individuals are always going to try in the absence of understanding what they're supposed to do to pull the entire engagement of your business toward their strength. We talked about this a little bit last time. It's just a spin on that. So if you've got a really strong data person, they're going to pull your whole business into data like a sucking machine. And whether or not that ever makes any money is a big question mark. If you've got a person that's really, really, really good at like some kind of niche skill set, they're going to pull your whole business into that area, whether or not it's the vision that you have or whatever it is you're trying to aspire to. What you sometimes actually wanted from them was this beautiful orchestration of multiple skill sets in the right mixture, you know, in the right knowledge level combined for this other goal that you keep saying at the top of your lungs, but they don't understand. That tends to be when you bring in someone like me, you might bring in um, a senior manager of some sort, COO, CIO, CEO, whatever it is. Those types of positions where you don't have the perfect person or that you do have the perfect person, they need some support. That support is hard to identify. Those are the types of projects that I end up on. Cool. So do you want to talk about any current projects that you're consulting on right now that are fun and interesting and exciting? Yeah, I'm just beneath being able to talk about it in in full disclosure. Um, it's a really exciting one to me because it touches uh, foreign language instruction, specifically as relates to foreign language accents. And this one has always been near and dear to my heart because growing up the way that I did, I know that a lot of folks that are extremely brilliant do get discredited for not having the perfect accent. But hopefully by the next time I can, I, uh, that I talk to you, I can talk about it because it is uh, so cool. And the people that are on this staff, I mean, they care and they are really brilliant. And some of the things that they have done are just to be admired. To be admired, especially in light of an awareness that some of them, English again, is not their first language. That's awesome. All right. At this point, Mei Ling, are you ready for the lightning round? Again? I did so terribly on the first one. I thought for sure you'd be like, all right, really? I had to come up with new lightning round questions. New lightning round questions? Yeah, they are all new. My God, but you know, the first time I I got feedback from my own friends, May, you don't conceptually understand lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> although I put forth the parameters that although the questions will be short, your answers do not have to be. <laughs> 
So I will right, give right, you. Right. I will it's give a lightning you that. round, lightning fast questions, super turtle-like slow answers. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Cue the sound. The lightning round. We are currently sitting in your beloved New York City. How would you describe what you love and why you love New York City? It's a good question. <laughs> um, you know, the thing with New York that's pretty amazing is that when I first started my sojourn, when I first resigned, I realized how much fun I was having in other cities. And I was like, wow, what's New York like, right? And what I realized about New York is New York is New York. Like in other cities, you can come to the end of the city. You can be like, all right, I've done everything. I don't need to go back to XYZ city. Not every city. There's other cities that fit this, but there's very few others. Now I've been here for 12 years in New York city. Maybe it's more than that. I don't know. Maybe it's less than that. Something we'll call it 12. All right. I've been here for like 12 years in New York. And when I took this challenge accepted on, so to speak, I was like, oh, I wonder how long it's going to take. It, I'm not done. There is still like, my Instagram feed still has plenty of stuff that I can post that's not repetitive and still very, very cool. And that's part of New York. Now, is it your brand of cool, specifically haters of New York? I don't care. So it turns out, you know, but it is, uh, for a lot of people, it is their brand of cool. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a booming economy here in this awesome city. You also travel a lot and you travel to all sorts of different places. You've been to 58 countries now. Why do you travel? What do you get out of travel? What does travel mean to you? Oh, I finally figured this one out. Actually, you helped me figure this one out. It's the curiosity thing. If there were any adjectives that must describe me, curiosity is definitely... Would, would you say? Yeah. Curiosity is definitely one of them. I am curious. That's probably why I talk randomly to Uber drivers without solicitation of any sort. You know, I want to understand. I want to know. And travel is like the ultimate, like, it's the ultimate activity for a curious person. I mean, where you go? It could be the most boring place to other people. I remember I was in Malmo and I liked Malmo a lot. I ran the Malmo half there and I stayed in an Airbnb with the nicest human being ever. And I took some pictures of Malmo and then I, I did what I always do, which is a little bit of Photoshop, I'm not gonna lie. And I showed it to him. I was like, your city's beautiful. What are you talking? He was like, why are you coming to Malmo? I'm like, your city's beautiful. Look. And he's like, you pimped my city. I was like, this is how I see your city. What do you mean I pimped your city? He just made fun of me for a while. Nice Swedish guy. The way the Swedes make fun of people. But I, such a brilliant man because he had a map of all the places that he wanted to go to. And Malmo wasn't one of them, <laughs> even though he'd made it his home base and his, his, his uh, city of choice. Uh, but yeah, curiosity for sure. That's awesome. You on the last podcast identified when I asked you what was on the top of your list of places you most wanted to go. One of the cities you listed in the last podcast was Budapest. Oh, yeah. Which you've already subsequently been to, of yeah. course. Yeah, Lori. So, so. <laughs> I hung out with her. She took me to dinner. That's awesome. Yeah, she's so cool. She's really cool. She's queen of, queen of Hungary to me. Shout out to yeah, Lori. Yeah, Lori. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you for one more city that is now since you've done that and you've knocked it off the list what is one more city right now that you've never been to that you are super excited you really want to go to not a city it's actually a country it can be a country okay so like i almost ended up going but i'm trying to do this whole stay put in new york for a little bit thing for just a little you know because if you're a nomad it doesn't mean you just avoid places you know so to speak new york city legit city quite frankly you know um but i almost ended up going to um lebanon 
dude, Lebanon looks so cool. I mean, I want to go. The food looks amazing. Lebanon is amazing. You been? Be- yes. Oh, yeah, Beirut, you told me that. Beirut is I'm go. amazing. And then the outskirts. That's why I couldn't just leave it to, to a yeah, city. Yeah, and I have a lot of friends in Lebanon. So I have ah, a lot of friends that live in Beirut. Um, and then I also have friends that either live in or are from the south of Lebanon as well, which they invited me to go and I wasn't able to go. I um, go. Because they have, you know, olive farms and everything. And it's just, it's amazing. But the food in Beirut is unequivocally. I mean, that's that's really the culinary epicenter. And the nightlife is also amazing. And they also make, I don't know if you know this, but they also make some amazing wine in Lebanon. The the Chateau Moussard and some of the stuff that comes, it's just a world-class, world-renowned, iconic wine. A lot of people don't know that. So, and then the sights look crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. So highly recommended. I think it's a great, great choice. And uh, definitely Lebanon. recommend, recommend people check out Lebanon. So awesome. Mei Ling, I want to ask you one more lightning round question. Then we're going to tell people how they can get a hold of you. Knowing everything you know now in your life up to this point, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Little young Mei Mei, what would I tell her? Uh, chill out. I mean, still, seriously, like, chill out. I was so, you know, I came from such a small town. The situation at the time was unbearable, you know, and in my small town, like, Florida is not, like, Florida was ranked 48th at one point for education until we, Jeb Bush became governor. Additionally, and, and my area definitely would have been a testament to why, as the first thing. Um, the second thing is, you know, my area... All of the high schools that I went to when I was growing up, that I would 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 have, I think, eight over eighty percent qualification for school lunch. You know what I mean? People were broke, and I was so I was watching huge portion of my um, graduating class, the women get pregnant before graduating. I was like, get the heck out of Dodge. This is not going to work out. This is not the vision that I have for myself, and I was so aggressive about it for so long. And I just think I would tell that person to chill. I mean, I've worked on chill out. Trust me, last few years of travel has been kind of fun. I'm not going to lie. I got it now. Chill out. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And a lot of my friends are all about the chill out. But definitely 18-year-old self, chill out, man. Life is really, really short. And what actually is valuable is is something that you, uh, yeah, Chill out would be it. Even though you got a tiger mom, you got to try to find the balance there. You got to be respectful when you're chill out and not freak that woman out. You know, she's got heart condition, et cetera. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, let's tell people how they can follow you on social media, how they can connect with you, how they can contact you. If, you know, some people might be interested in your business consulting services. Some people may just want to travel, follow your travel adventures on Instagram or another platform. So what's the best way for people to check you out and see what you're up to and get a hold of you? Yeah, it all links back to my website, www.mailinglie.com. Very simple way to uh, to click through to pretty much anything that is me. And then my Instagram is where is mailing. Currently, it's just dedicated to travel. At where is Mei Ling? It's mostly so I can figure out where I am. I think people think it's for them. And I love that anyone follows me at all other than my mother, who I know is following me to be nosy. I love you, mom, again. You know, I'll make sure that I'm still alive, et cetera. So half my stories, by the way, if I'm at the airport, I'm like, this is where I am. That's actually for my mom in case I, because it's like too early or too late to get through to her. Um, yeah. 
those are all for you, mom, if you are listening. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, where's mailings actually so I can remember where I was. But to the extent that you guys like the pictures or want to follow it, I'm so thrilled and so uh, thankful and, and grateful for that. That's awesome. We're going to link all that up in the show notes. So you can just go to themaverickshow.com. All of May Ling's contact information will be in one place there, as well as the link to her speed reading course and everything else that we discussed in this episode. May Ling, thank <laughs> you for being here yeah. again. Yeah, we're going to get some New York pizza now, I think, or something like let's that. Let's go <laughs> do that. See if it stops thawing. But you were... Sending you out in the snow. <laughs> send, send me out in the snow. I'll go. Uh, I'll go. I'll be, get on... Uh, I'll go get on pizza duty. So (laughs) when you were the uh, first guest on the Maverick show, you were also the first repeat guest on the Maverick show. So so special. Thank you for being here. It was awesome to have you. Cool. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes real estate investors are making in today's market? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash avoid mistakes. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash avoid mistakes.